What does it say about Washington Republicans and Democrats that come together to deregulate big banks on the 10th anniversary of the start of the 2008 financial crisis? Says happy anniversary. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair, and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Up in Seattle, Washington on KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, in Round Mountain, California on KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, as you may have heard, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and other fine affiliates. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yes, we will talk about this uh We'll talk to a Senate Financial Committee expert about this horrible banking bill to ease regulations on big banks that is moving quickly through Congress right now. It was passed in the Senate on Wednesday with the support of Republicans and Democrats alike. We'll be joined with someone who actually knows what they're talking about in that regard uh, shortly. Uh, But first, a lot of breaking news, unfortunately, today, including... Uh, This out of Florida, a pedestrian bridge that was being built across an eight-lane highway collapsed at a Miami-area college, crushing eight vehicles under massive slabs and killing multiple people. According to authorities, search and rescue missions are underway as we speak. As we go to air, eight people have so far been taken to hospitals. The numbers of uh, the number of fatalities was not immediately known. The main focus is to rescue people right now, said Miami-Dade uh, Police Director Juan Perez. As soon as those efforts are over, our homicide bureau will take the lead. Oh, the main companies behind the bridge's uh, construction here have faced questions about their work, and one of the companies was fined back in 2012 when a 90-ton section of a bridge collapsed in Virginia. The citation at the time from the Virginia Department of Labor and Industry said that the company did not do proper inspections of the girder that failed. That, according to a story from the uh, Virginia pilot, but then the uh, same company was hired anyway to do the job in Florida, I guess. In Miami... 
the bridge uh, that collapsed was a 950-ton, 174-foot span. And it was assembled by the side of the highway. It was moved into place in one day on Saturday. Uh, too much fanfare. The uh, $14.2 million bridge was to connect Florida International University, FIU, and the city of Sweetwater. It was expected to open a foot traffic next year. But the, uh, the, the accelerated bridge construction that they were able to put in in just one day across these eight lanes of highway was supposed to reduce risks to workers and pedestrians and minimize traffic disruption, according well, sure. to the university. Yeah, well, it minimized traffic disruption during construction. That was this accelerated bridge construction technology where they assemble it on the side of the road and swing it around to above where it was supposed to be and then install it in just hours because they didn't want to disrupt traffic. FIU President uh, Mark Rosenberg said in the statement uh, on Saturday, as the bridge was moved into place, that FIU, this is a quote, FIU is about building bridges and student safety. This project accomplishes our mission beautifully. Yeesh. Uh, MCM, the Miami-based construction management firm that won the bridge contract, Contract took it took its website down on Thursday after this happened, but an archive version, according to the Associated Press, um, uh, featured a news release touting this project with the uh, Fig Bridge engineers. They were the company, uh, the, the ones that were fined in 2012 in Virginia. They were cited by MCM as quote a nationally acclaimed, award-winning firm based out of Tallahassee. Uh, FIU is the second largest university in the state, 55,000 students. Uh, most of the students live off campus. This bridge was supposed to be a safe way to cross this busy street. Uh, and um, in August 2017, a university student was killed crossing the road that the bridge was supposed to span. So uh, we will learn more about that, I suspect, in the days ahead. Also, a... Um, uh, another disaster down in Texas at yet another chemical plant which has exploded and is also on fire as we go to air today. We'll try to get to more of that a bit little, a little bit later uh, with Desi Doyen and your Green News Report, yes. which is coming up also a little bit later. Uh, at the same time, uh, let's jump in here. The Trump administration accused Moscow on Thursday of a concerted hacking operation targeting the U.S. energy grid, speaking of Desi Doyen and the Green <laughs> News Report, uh, yeah. targeting the U.S. energy grid, aviation systems, and other infrastructure. And uh, they also imposed sanctions on Russia for the first time for alleged interference in the 2016 election. This was the strongest action to date against Russia by this administration, which has long been accused of being too soft on the Kremlin. And the first punishments for election meddling since President Donald Trump took office. The sanctions list uh, includes the 13 Russians that were indicted last month by special counsel Robert Mueller, whose Russia investigation the president has repeatedly sought to discredit. But I guess now he's uh, using that uh, information from that special counsel probe uh, for these sanctions. U.S. national security officials said the FBI, Department of Homeland Security and intelligence agencies had determined that Russian intelligence and others were behind a broad range of cyber attacks. 
beginning a year ago that have infiltrated the energy, nuclear, commercial, water, aviation, and manufacturing sectors. The official said the Russian hackers chose their targets, obtained access to computer systems, conducted network reconnaissance of systems that control key elements of the U.S. economy, and then attempted to cover their tracks by deleting evidence of their infiltration. Now, if that is true, and if the government, uh, the intelligence community, the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, etc., uh, if if it is true and they are saying that Russia has done this, can anybody, anybody explain to me why last summer, June of 2017, during a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary Jeanette Manfra admitted that the DHS, in fact, nor anybody else, I believe, that we know of, has bothered to check the voting machines and tabulators that were used in 2016 or even just count the paper ballots to find out if they were actually tabulated correctly or if they were manipulated in some fashion in the 2016 election. Here's Jeanette Mamfra in uh, June of last year being asked about this by, uh, I think this was Ron Wyden. Has the department conducted any kind of post-election forensics on the voting machines that were used in 2016? We have not. Our department has not conducted forensics on specific voting machines. So they're admitting that they haven't looked at specific voting machines, tabulators, presumably. I don't get it. They're saying on one hand that uh, you know, Russia has hacked all of this infrastructure today. They're saying that they have uh, hacked our election in 2016 in various ways, and yet they nobody has bothered to check these systems. Either they don't, all I can conclude is either they don't want to know what happened in 2016, uh, or you know whether the results were manipulated that year, or they don't understand how these vulnerable how, how vulnerable these systems actually are. I don't know. Either way, that makes it, frankly, very difficult for me to have much confidence in any of their assertions when it comes to cyber crimes. I'm not saying that Russia didn't do it. I'm just saying I have very little confidence in the assessments of our intelligence communities on this stuff. And I take no joy in saying that because I know it sounds a hell of a lot like something that Donald Trump might say. But I see no other way around it, uh, at least if I am to tell you the truth over your public airwaves here. I suppose it's possible they have done some sort of uh, forensic investigation of those systems or those ballots since June 2017 and haven't told us about it. Maybe another department did, but it seems highly unlikely that we wouldn't have heard something about it from somewhere at this point. Because despite what uh, Mike Pompeo the head of the CIA, who's about to become the uh, new secretary of state, despite what he said when he claimed falsely that the U.S. had determined that uh, no votes were, were changed in any fashion, the results weren't changed in any fashion. No, the intelligence community has not concluded that. They have basically, they have said they have found no evidence that that has happened, but they have not looked. And of course, most of that evidence of any tampering will likely soon be gone entirely if it's not already. Once those systems are reprogrammed, those same voting uh, and tabulation systems are reprogrammed for the 2018 elections. 
And then after the paper ballots are all destroyed as well, 22 months later after the 2016 election, they, they have to they're supposed to keep those paper ballots for 22 months. So I, I you know, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. The U.S. government has uh, helped the industries kick out the Russians from all systems currently known to have been penetrated, AP reports, according to officials. But the efforts continue. Uh, So I guess um, the federal government was issuing an alert to the energy industry to raise awareness about the threat and improve preparation. So the energy industry, I guess, is more of a concern than the election industry. Go figure. That alert, published online by Homeland Security, said that the hacking effort was a multi-stage intrusion campaign by Russian government cyber actors who targeted small commercial facilities uh, networks to gain access and to plant malware, which was then used to monitor activity as well as to move laterally onto other larger industrial control systems. The accusations and accompanying Russian sanctions were the most severe yet by the Trump administration in connection with hacking and other efforts to sow discord into America's democracy and compromise its infrastructure. Also on Thursday, President Trump, who has been publicly skeptical of the election allegations, joined the leaders of Britain and France and Germany in a joint statement blaming Moscow for the poisoning of an ex-Russian spy who was living in England. Reaction to all of this from Russia has been swift. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei uh, Ryabkov warned that Russia had already, quote, started to prepare a response, adding that while the Kremlin is responding calmly to the new sanctions, and in his words, quote, taking this in our stride, he says Russia has, quote, begun preparing retaliatory measures. Hey, this is getting fun. These um, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said that these targeted sanctions are a part of a broader effort to address the ongoing nefarious attacks emanating from Russia. He said others would face punishment in the future under the new sanctions law, quote, to hold Russian government officials and oligarchs accountable for their destabilizing activities. Is it my imagination or is this a big change for the uh, Trump administration in in tone, in comments, in action? Oh, it's a huge, it's it's almost a complete 180. It's it's rather surprising and welcome to see them finally taking some kind of action about these intrusions and this in incredibly alleged intrusions, alleged intrusions yeah. and the, you know, the uh, the alleged poisoning by allegedly Russia <laughs> right. of the uh, of the agent on British soil. I mean, that's 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 really serious stuff altogether in these sanctions. Nineteen Russians were cited. That would be the uh, 13 who were mentioned in the uh, in the, uh, the who were already indicted by Robert. Muller uh, also sanctioned were five Russian companies, including the Internet Research Agency, which is accused of orchestrating a mass online disinformation campaign to affect the presidential election results. Thursday's action freezes any assets that the individuals and entities may have in the U.S. and bars Americans from doing business with them. So uh, that's where we are on that. That's fun. And uh, interesting also that it was uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin who was uh, talking about these, uh, I guess, because uh, Treasury is is oversees these sort of financial sanctions. 
But speaking of uh, finance and the economy, Donald Trump in a Thursday morning tweet uh, before all of this, uh, all of the sanctions, he confirmed reports that Larry Kudlow of CNBC will, in fact, serve as the next National Economic Council director at the White House. He tweeted uh, announcing Kudlow's appointment, quote, our country will have many years of great economic and financial success with low taxes, unparalleled innovation, fair trade and an ever expanding labor force leading the way. Exclamation. <laughs> that was added there. Uh, Kudlow will replace Gary Cohn, who resigned last week after reportedly expressing his opposition to Trump's new tariffs on steel and aluminum and the subsequent global trade war that is expected to come from it, I suspect. Kudlow, uh, currently a CNBC financial analyst, was an advisor to Trump during the 2016 campaign. He also worked with uh, in the Ronald Reagan administration. He was an uh, economic policy advisor at the time. During Trump's 2016 presidential run, he sometimes publicly thanked, quote, the great Larry Kudlow for his support on various economic policies that were laid out during the race using the well-known economist to buoy his and validate his own uh, his own positions Kudlow has also previously expressed his opposition to these new steel and aluminum tariffs that Trump is now implementing he's been very vocal about breaking with Trump on a number of other issues at least he has been in the past i suspect that all changes right about now on uh, Tuesday, according to NBC, Trump said that Kudlow, quote, has now come around to believing in tariffs as a negotiating point. <laughs> I'll bet he has. While right wing uh, while the right wing economist may not have been in lockstep with the president on tariffs, Kudlow did reiterate his support on Wednesday for the Republican passed tax cuts and other deregulation efforts. And despite being someone who doesn't who says he doesn't like tariffs, he said he agreed with the president that China's past actions called for them to receive a, quote, comeuppance on trade. According to AP, Kudlow uh, said on Wednesday that he uh, accepted the offer uh, for the job and that the U.S. economy is poised to take off after Trump signed the one and a half trillion dollars worth of tax cuts into law. He said, quote, the economy is starting to roar and we're going to get more of that. Well, take that with a grain of salt, because, uh, of course, Kudlow also famously declared back in December of 2007 in a column that he wrote for National Review that George W. Bush's presidency was ushering a ushering in a new golden era. He said, quote, there's no recession coming. It's not going to happen. Economists later concluded that the Great Recession and the financial meltdown that it triggered began the very month that Kudlow's column was published uh, in the National Review. So that's the guy who will now be the top White House advisor on economics to Donald Trump, to the president of the United States and... As if that's not fun enough, uh, he was named on the 10th anniversary of the collapse of financial giant Bear Stearns, where Kudlow used to work. And as if all of that isn't swell enough, on the very same day, the 10th anniversary of the collapse of the big bank that began the rolling collapse that became the 2008 financial meltdown, 
uh, on that same day, Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. Senate just passed a measure to ease the banking reforms that were put in place by Congress just after that collapse 10 years ago to avoid another collapse in the future. So uh, why did they do this? What exactly did they do? And why the hell were Democrats joining them in that effort? Well, Bart Naylor, former chief of investigations for the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, he joins us next on the broadcast to explain. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Senate on Wednesday passed bipartisan legislation to ease bank rules that were enacted in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis to prevent a relapse of the 2008 financial crisis, which caused millions of Americans to lose their jobs and their homes. The Senate voted 67-31 for a bill from Republican Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho that would dial back portions of the law known as Dodd-Frank. The legislation would increase the threshold at which banks are considered so big and plugged into the financial grid that if one were to fail, it would cause major havoc. President Trump signaled that he will sign the bill. Dismantling Dodd-Frank has been one of his uh, long campaign pledges. After the vote on Wednesday, the White House said in a statement that, quote, the bill provides much needed relief from the Dodd-Frank Act for thousands of community banks and credit unions and will spur lending and economic growth without creating risks to the financial system. Re, uh, Republicans unanimously supported this bill while Democrats splintered into two separate camps. One included several senators from rural states who worked out the compromise with Crapo. The other, led by Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, said the bill catered too much to the banks that contributed to the financial crisis and would likely increase the likelihood of future taxpayer bailouts. The Congressional Budget Office experts say the bill will increase the chances that taxpayers will have to bail out the big banks again. And for what? So that banks that are already making record profits can tack on a little more to their bottom line? What does it say about Washington Republicans and Democrats that can't come together to support common sense gun reforms or solutions for working families, but can come together to deregulate big banks on the 10th anniversary of the start of the 2008 financial crisis. 
Well, see, happy anniversary. There is something that Republicans and Democrats can get along uh, when it comes to, uh, well, at least when it comes to banks, big banks. The list of Democratic senators who voted for some reason in favor of rolling back the Wall Street reforms enacted after the 2008 global financial meltdown just for your records as you head to the voting booth this year and in the years ahead, include uh, Senators Manchin of West Virginia, Peters of Michigan, Tester of Montana, Carper of Delaware, uh, Hassan of New Hampshire, Tim Kaine of Virginia, McCaskill of Missouri, Shaheen of, North, of New Hampshire, Warner of Virginia, Coons of Delaware, Heitkamp of North Dakota, Nelson of Florida, Stabenow of Michigan, Bennett of Colorado, Donnelly of Indiana, and Jones of Alabama. Democrats all. The measure must still be reconciled in conference with the uh, even more draconian cutting of Dodd-Frank based uh, in the U.S. House. But so far, uh, as Ohio's Sherrod Brown said shortly before the before the vote, quote, big banks and their lobbyists are about to score a touchdown at the expense of hardworking families across the country. Indeed, as Politico reports, while the bill is a huge victory so far for bank lobbyists who have been working to curb Dodd-Frank since it was first drafted, the industry will keep pushing lawmakers and regulators for even more carve-outs in the years to come. American Bankers Association president and CEO Rob Nichols said, quote, this is a first step. So what exactly does this bill do and why the hell have uh, 16 Democratic senators come aboard to support it, especially since the measure could not have made it through at all? without the support from those Senate Democrats. Here to help me understand any of this, frankly, is Bartlett Naylor. He is the financial policy advocate for Public Citizens Congress Watch Division. He previously served as chief of investigations for the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, where he focused on the savings and loan crisis, insider trading, corporate takeovers. Naylor was once described by Bloomberg News as a bicycle-riding bank antagonist and has some thoughts on the new bill passed in the Senate this week with the help of so-called moderate Democrats to deregulate big banks on the 10th anniversary of the start of the 2008 global financial crisis. Bart Naylor, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. I've uh, got a lot to ask you about on this uh, banking bill and why the hell Democrats are supporting it. But first, uh, any quick thoughts on the appointment of uh, right-wing uh, economist Larry Kudlow of, uh, N of CNBC as Trump's top economic advisor, filling the role of Gary Cohn, who quit last week reportedly in protest of Trump's new steel and aluminum tariffs? Um, this is a job that doesn't require Senate confirmation, so in one sense it's one that uh, carries less gravity. Kudlow, on the other hand, um, uh, was uh, an economist that failed to anticipate the financial crash. He was um, fairly Pollyanna on that, so it's not clear if he will, at least in the banking issue, be very prescient in determining whether mm -hmm. there are problems on the horizon. So, uh, again, I'm not sure that uh, Trump's choice is generally in in terms of Wall Street regulations, have been good ones, and I don't think this one changes that 
that record. Yeah, not only was he not prescient, he actually said uh, the 2008 meltdown wouldn't happen. There will be no recession, uh, he said, just as the market was crashing. All right, well, when it comes to the market crashing, uh, let's talk about this bill in broad terms, Bart. Uh, what does this big bank reform bill specifically do when it comes to these uh, big banks who had faced reforms after the 2008 collapse that now seem to be uh, getting rolled back? The worst um, part of the 40-some provisions says that banks up to $250 billion in assets uh, aren't going to be scrutinized with any special care. They'll be scrutinized just the way a bank with uh, $1 billion or $200 million in assets. Um, the, this is a class of banks that collectively took some $50 billion of bailout money. A, a dozen of them uh, have engaged in misconduct and have been sanctioned by various regulators in the past three or four years. This class would have included Countrywide. Countrywide is now part of Bank of America. But it had $200 billion in assets, and it made so many reckless bad loans that it toxified the entire industry. Mm. Um, so by taking their eyes off of this class, uh, those of us who are concerned about this bill are saying that it, it invites another financial calamity. That's just one of the 40 provisions. There are several others. So there was protections, basically, that were, were put in place, sort of a definition of what makes a big bank. And now we're, we're just changing that definition. So if you have, let's say, if you're a bank with $100 billion in assets, $150 billion, you no longer have to go through the same, uh, what they call the, the stress, the annual stress tests and that, so that's forth. Right. That's, that's, that's right. The stress test is... A, a, an experiment, uh, just a paper experiment that says, what if your real estate loans go bad? What if unemployment is much higher? Uh, what will your bank look like? And with that, how much capital? That, and capital is an accounting term that's simply the difference between assets and liabilities. Mm -hmm. And your assets, in this case, are loans. If these loans are devalued, how close do they come to the level of your liabilities? That is to say, how close to insolvency are you? Um, and if you come that close, then we'd like you to, to add a little bit more capital, sell more shares to the public, or retain some earnings as opposed to spending them out of dividends. Mm -hmm. another, um, another safeguard is uh, liquidity. In other words, of your assets, how many can you turn into cash very quickly? A long-term loan is difficult to turn into cash, but an investment in a treasury or um, other types of short-term investments mm -hmm. can be turned into cash um, quickly. Um, then there's um, simply capital, and that is how much capital the, the banks have to have. There, there are a mm -hmm. couple of others, and now they're now saying with this bill that those special guardrails are not important. We're going to keep them on for the very biggest banks, like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, but for this class of banks, we're going to take those guardrails down. Now, why would... <laughs> It, it just in the to be generous here, why would that make any sense whatsoever? Are are these stress tests, these requirements, are they so onerous uh, the, as some public officials seem to suggest, or is it something that the banks simply don't want to do because it would reveal how you know vulnerable that they may be to collapse in the wake of a sudden market jolt like we saw in, in two thousand eight. My belief is that at the bottom, the banks want to run with as much leverage as possible. 
they would like to have as much borrowed money in their operations as they can. Mm. And right now, it's, it's pushing 95%. Similarly, if you were a house flipper, you want to put as little money of your own and borrow as much such that when you flip the house, your profit, if the house goes up by uh, you know 10%, mm-hmm. and with very little money down, you've doubled or tripled your money. And that's exactly the way a bank is working. And unfortunately, enhanced supervision, that's the technical term for what's being eliminated here, um, harms their ability. And in my opinion, it all comes down to bank bonuses because executive compensation for the CEOs of these banks is always tied to the stock price. Mm. And if the stock price moves more quickly with greater profits, then that um, translates directly into the paycheck for the CEO. Both the... uh uh, both the White House and the uh, the bill's uh, Republican sponsors, at least in the Senate, have cited the need to, quote, protect community banks and credit unions. Is there any validity to those concerns? And if there is, could this bill have been tailored in such a way that, yes, it protected them, those actually, you know, smaller banks in some fashion, without giving away giving giving away the bank, so to speak, to these huge banks with tens and uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets? Um, yes, but they don't have the lobbyists that the big banks mm-hmm. do. And yes, uh, big banks have hidden behind small banks in Washington since about 2008. You, you don't see uh, a banker from J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo or even some of these, these mid-sized banks uh, testifying before Congress. It's always, you know the Natural Health Food Bank from New Hampshire or the, um, the uh, Wisconsin Cheese Funders Bank uh, that's testifying, although the testimony is written by the American Bankers Association. Yeah. And so with that in mind, why, pray tell, are the Democrats coming on board here? First, let me ask you it this way. Uh, what is their claim? Why do they claim they are coming on board here? And then what is, in your opinion, the, the real reason as you see it? Well, the claim is that they're re- relieving the burden from community banks so that they can make more loans. And I would have to say that these members probably or possibly believe that. They are listening to community banks, both in Washington and when they go back to their district, and community banks and all bankers complain about regulation. That's what they do. If you look back at the congressional records of hearings, bankers complain about regulation. We, we looked at testimony in the five months leading to the financial crash, and they were complaining about regulation. That's the time we needed more regulation and tighter supervision, and yet there they were with the market flooded with debt, complaining about regulation. It's what they do. What's the answer? Well, we looked at where Wall Street contributions played a role. How did it count next to other industries, pharmaceuticals or healthcare or mining or agriculture? These senators come from a whole bunch of different states where Wall Street, you know, doesn't doesn't exist. And yet Wall Street of the twelve original Democratic co sponsors, Wall Street was the number one source of contribution for nine of them. Wow. Yeah. And these are huge numbers we're talking about, too. These are, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations, millions of dollars in donations to to again, to these Democratic senators. And if you look at if you look at the commercial bank sector, their numbers, one, two and three largest beneficiaries were the three original, three of the four original co-sponsors on the banking committee. You already mentioned some of their names, Heitkamp, Tester and Donnelly. 
And and those guys, all three of them, I think, are up for election uh, this November. Um, That's right. And elections cost money. Yeah, they do. But then, but all of these, uh, what is it? I think it's sixteen Democratic senators plus one uh, Angus King independent. Right. Um, right. Not all of them are up for election this uh, this November. What what's their excuse? <laughs> well, I think what may have happened is there's a, a phrase in the in Congress called cover. So in other words, if I support it, can you please support it so it makes it so mm-hmm. I'm not so isolated. So Kane's up for re-election and Warner is the total. So both Virginia senators. Mm-hmm. So both both Delaware senators. Um, um, both um, Michigan senators, yeah. for example. The, the one can sort of they uh, dilute some of the heat that the other one is taking. I gotcha. Is there any, uh, to your knowledge, Bart, uh, is there any actual support from the public, from the voters, not from the banks or the elected officials here that they have bought off, but but from the voters? Uh, is there any support for rolling back Dodd-Frank? We hear this all the time. We've heard this you know, throughout uh, Trump's campaign. He was talking about it. I haven't checked the polling, but I've just not really heard anybody, any actual voters, complaining that the reforms that were put in place after 2008 were, were, were too much for these poor banks. Right. None. No. If you look at the record of, of groups that have sent in letters or expressions of opposition or support, um, in opposition is labor unions, faith groups, civil rights groups, consumer advocacy groups such as ours. Um, the only people that are supporting this bill are bankers. Former regulators oppose this bill. Paul Volcker, a Repub- uh, Democrat. Sheila Bear, the former head of the FDIC, a Republican. And on and on and on. The only ones. The Cato Foundation, a libertarian think tank, mm-hmm. did a poll of whether or not there should be rolling back um, Wall Street reform. Everyone says no. Everyone supports Wall Street regulation, Republican, Democrat. And that's coming from the Cato Institute, the, the, the free marketeers at the Cato Institute, right. their own poll. Uh, now, Democratic Senator uh, Tom Carper of Delaware, a big banking state, said that if this bill becomes law, 90 percent of Dodd-Frank would remain unchanged. Ninety percent. Should we take any comfort from that, Bart? Uh, th- there's a lot of this uh, that that will still be in place. We shouldn't worry. We're we're over worrying about all of this. Uh, I, well, you also have the, on the other side the big bank lobbyists saying this is just a first step in gutting Dodd Frank. But the fact that ninety percent will still be in place, should we take any comfort from that? Well, yes. But if you were to say that you drilled a big hole in the Hoover Dam and said that but 90% of it is still there, that, that's still a problem. Uh, so, for example, another element of this bill allows banks with less than $10 billion to uh, escape the Volcker Rule, which is a prohibition on gambling with the taxpayer-backed deposits. Mm-hmm. But when I was working for the Senate Banking Committee, the savings and loan crisis was caused by a little change in the law they didn't get rid of all of the savings and loan law, just a little change that allowed the savings and loan executives to invest directly into real estate. Well, that pretty much changed the savings and loan population from skeptical lenders, as they should be, to real estate developers who just bought savings and loans mm-hmm. and made loans to their own and investments in their own projects, leading to thousands of failures, and in this case, thousands of, uh, a thousand that actually went to jail for fraud. 
And so you make a little change in the Volcker rule and say, hey, if you want, um, if you want to buy a little bank, a not so little bank, mm-hmm. a bank with $10 billion, you can use it to run a hedge fund. And as you know, you don't get much interest on those deposits. That's a pretty cheap and abundant source of money. To oh, use yeah. Back to oh, yeah. There's no... Yeah, what happened to that? We used to get uh, interest when you would put uh, money into a savings uh, or a checking account. It's like 0.02 now. It's I know. Uh, I, yeah. I, I fill up my income tax form, and it says, how much interest did I get from my bank account? And it's a ridiculous. I got you know $4.12 that yeah. I have to pay tax on. It's a joke. So we don't get uh, to take advantage of that, but the banks do. They get to enjoy our money. All right. Uh, I understand that the uh, the House version of this bill, which has already passed, uh, is even more expansive, is even a more extensive rollback of Dodd-Frank. Is, is there any chance that the measure can still be stopped in conference committee at this point? that perhaps the provisions and the, the hardline uh, House version of the bill uh, will lead to Democrats in the Senate pulling out somehow? Or uh, what can, yes, what can the, we do at this the, point? The, there is a thin path that, that the House overreaches and Hensling, Judge Hensling, the um, chair of the um, uh, House Financial mm-hmm. Services Committee, is so right-wing that he is uh, you know, in, in problems with Main Street Republicans. And he obviously wants and has stated that he wants a lot more. Um, Tester, for example, has, has said, and using um, uh, sailor's language, that uh, he better not do this, that it would tank the bill. Uh, so that is still a possibility. We're concerned that these senators have already stepped out so far and are trying to defend their positions as not rolling back Dodd-Frank, that to... to walk away from it now um, would be a concession and an admission that they have um, rolled back too much Dodd-Frank even to start with. But if uh, just a few of them, uh, half of those Democrats can get uh, pulled off of it between now and and final passage, then it wouldn't be able to pass the filibuster, so there is a chance it could be stopped? That's right. This is now a, a contest of numbers, and it would require six or seven or eight change their votes, and that is where we will be focusing for the next two or so months. Do you have any uh, suggestions for the uh, for, for listeners here? Who should they call? Their senators? Their House members? What what should they do? Well, I mean, I think the focus should be on the on the Senate, and all of those 16 that, that you mentioned, you know, I, I don't know who is more vulnerable, um, but, uh, you know, you would think that Shaheen and Hassan of New Hampshire uh, shouldn't have signed on in the first place. Um, I don't know why Nelson, you know, for re-election, wants to defend this um, in Florida. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I don't know. Well, I, I suspect that it's about campaign contributions, but I don't know why any senator up for re-election wants to tell his or her constituents that they, you know, <laughs> they're trying to help the banks. And, and that's what they, they do say. They're not trying to help consumers. They're trying to help the banks. Well, the banks are doing well. They're making profits. They're making loans. And uh, they're about to make a whole bunch more profits. Uh, If you'd like to ask your senator what he or she is thinking, uh, you can call the uh, 
both the, your, the House and the Senate. You can call them at 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. Uh, you can ask them what they're thinking. You can give them a piece of your mind very politely when it comes to this uh, banking bill, which to me seems absolutely insane. I expect that from Republicans. It's incredibly disappointing to see this many Democrats on board uh, Bart Naylor, really appreciate you helping us uh, understand this today. We're going to shout in, uh, in the future and bother you again uh, to explain these things, if you don't mind. Uh, you can find his Excellent. his advocacy, his work at citizen.org, and you should follow him on the Twitters at Bart Naylor. That's Bart, N-A-Y-L-O-R. Thanks a bunch, Bart. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, quick break, and we're back. Boy, I tell you, everything is irritating me today, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Just everything is irritating well, me. Well, this is understandable. It's kind of a big deal. You're saying the other stuff wasn't understandable? No, it's all a big deal. It's all understandable, yeah. but this is particularly egregious. Yeah. It is. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll come back. Uh, speaking of egregious, another explosion in Texas at a chemical plant and Desi Doyne's Green News Report. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Green News Report coming up momentarily, but this just in the... Um, this was uh, rumored yesterday, but now it looks like the New York Post and TMZ are confirming it, Des. Donald Trump Jr., President Trump's eldest child and the father of five himself, is being sued for divorce by his wife, Vanessa. Oh. As the USA Today reports, um, they have uh, five children together and uh, aging, uh, ranging in ages from three to ten. Mm. So um, there you go. Uh, this, uh, I guess, uh, Donald Trump Jr. really is taking over the family business. Oh. of divorcing Ow. everyone. Uh, well, speaking of, uh, he and his brother Eric, as you know, have taken over the Trump organization during the uh, once uh, Trump became president, at least in theory. Well, now the New York Times is reporting that special counsel Robert Mueller has subpoenaed the Trump organization to turn over documents, including some related to Russia in the first known instance of the special counsel demanding records directly related to President Trump's businesses. So things are heating up a little bit for Don Jr., <sighs> And, and for Don uh, Sr. And for Don Sr., indeed. All right, let me try to get to this before we get to our Green News report. One person is missing. Two people have been injured in an explosion and a large fire at a North Texas chemical plant on Thursday. Uh, first responders from multiple jurisdictions responded to the fire at the Tri-Chem Industries plant located in the rural Hood County town of Crescent, about 20 miles southwest of Fort Worth. 
Um, there was apparently a, quote, big kaboom at about 9.45 a.m., according to eyewitnesses, followed by big fireballs that began shooting out of the, biz- uh, out of the building. A number of de- fire departments were called to attack the fire, but were then ordered to stand down over concerns about additional explosions and exposure to toxic fumes. In fact, it was a secondary explosion, a huge explosion that took place at the chemical fertilizer uh, plant in West Texas, as you'll recall. Oh, yeah. A few years ago that killed a whole bunch of firefighters there who were there to put out an initial fire, as I remember. Yeah, they were there to put they they had a report of a fire. They showed up the volunteer firefighters. This is in West Texas. And then the fertilizer chemicals exploded and killed 15 people. Uh, that was uh, a year or two ago. This is in uh, th- that was the town of West Texas. This right. is actually in North Texas, the town of Crescent. Uh, the That's fire burned outside of Fort Worth. Right. For what it's worth outside uh, the the fire continued to burn uh, throughout the day. Second explosions were in fact seen uh, shortly after the firefighters the fire crew had been pulled back. Crescent Mayor Bob Cornett told the Associated Press um, of the injured workers. One of the injured workers caught fire from his waist up, was airlifted with critical burns to Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. That's about 50 miles away. Um, A third person, sadly, is still unaccounted for as uh, a second was uh, his injuries were not as serious, but a third person is unaccounted for at this hour. The uh, mother-in-law of the man who was severely burned in the fire told NBC that he had just started working at the facility three weeks ago, and they didn't realize just how dangerous his new job would be. She said through tears that we were told that this was a hazardous job when we started, when he started, but we didn't understand that it was something that could lead to this. She's not alone, of course. Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently blocked the public from learning what chemicals are used at which plants and what threat they may be to the public who are living near those plants. He said it was national security reasons. Is that why the public can't know? You wouldn't want terrorists to know where explosive chemicals are. The well, that's true. You wouldn't, but you might want the people to know who live uh, nearby that they, you know, might want to move because these things could explode at any time. Now we've got uh, the winds heading to the uh, north, blowing towards Dallas, Fort Worth. These toxic winds. The uh, mayor there, the mayor told AP that uh, Trichem mixes chemicals that are primarily used by the oil and gas industry to drill disposal wells. Uh, He said, again, this is the mayor. The mayor does not know how many of the chemicals stored at the plant were hazardous, but but that that was what had burned and exploded and was, in fact, quite toxic. But even the mayor apparently is not allowed to learn what sort of chemicals are stored in plants inside his own city. Yeah. That's exactly right. And just remember, also, this follows multiple attempts by the Trump administration to eliminate the U.S. Chemical Safety Board as well. Yeah. And the EPA entirely. Who needs them? (laughs) All right. Speaking of which, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. Look, I think the the science uh, needs to continue to develop. The U.S. may soon have its first ever climate science denying secretary of state. Climate change 
is accelerating catastrophic water events at an unprecedented rate. World leaders sound the alarm over global water scarcity crisis. Black lung disease surges back in coal country. Toymaker Lego goes green-er with plant-based plastics. Plus, the $320 million ice wall was built underground to keep water at bay. The barrier is failing. Seven years after the meltdown, Japan struggles to contain Fukushima's radioactive wastewater. All of those failures and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. With respect to climate change, I've read uh, countless studies. Really? Really, Mike Pompeo? You've read countless climate change studies? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, my world is turned upside down because I'm actually sad that the former CEO of ExxonMobil will no longer be our Secretary of State. Yep, indeed. This week, President Trump fired U.S. Secretary of State and, as you mentioned, former ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson and nominated current CIA Director Mike Pompeo to replace him. And that spells bad news for what is left of U.S. climate policy. While Tillerson did much to undermine the State Department and U.S. climate action, at least he accepted climate science and And he advocated for the U.S. to stay in the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement. But Pompeo supports Trump's decision to withdraw from the global accord. And if Pompeo's nomination is confirmed by the U.S. Senate, he would be the first climate change denying secretary of state. And make no mistake about it. This guy is really a climate science denier. Yep. In a 2013 appearance on C-SPAN, back when he was a Kansas congressman, Pompeo denied the global consensus among climate scientists on dangerous climate change. Look, I think the the science uh, needs to continue to develop. Uh, I'm happy to uh, continue to look at it. There are scientists that think uh, lots of different things about climate change. There's some who think we're warming. There's some who think we're cooling. Uh, There's some who think that the last 16 years have shown a pretty stable uh, climate environment. Okay, that's classic climate denierism right there. This is Mike Pompeo. He was from Kansas, Koch Brothers country, a former Tea Party congressman. Do you suppose that his climate denialism has anything to do with the fact that he wouldn't be there but for the Koch brothers? It seems pretty darn likely. And as if to underscore the importance of the international impacts of climate change, a new joint report released on Wednesday from the World Bank and the United Nations warns that the world faces a looming global water crisis. Because global warming is altering rainfall patterns around the world, the report projects that by 2030, more than 700 million people will face intense water scarcity, potentially triggering conflicts over water resources, especially in volatile regions. Oh, I'm sure Mike Pompeo has read that report and he's uh, seen the ones that contradict it and so he's going to do nothing about it. Yeah, he's not going to help negotiate or deal with his international security issue as Secretary of State. As Secretary of State. Here in the U.S., federal scientists say black lung disease has surged again in coal country. Black lung is a terminal lung disease that afflicts coal miners who breathe in coal dust. It had been in decline for years, but in a survey of medical records in Appalachian states, the scientists discovered the largest cluster of advanced black lung disease ever recorded. The scientists say they were surprised to see the advanced black lung disease even in young miners in their 30s and 40s. The researchers suggest that as Appalachia's 
coal deposits become depleted, miners are being exposed to more fine particle silica dust found in deeper coal seams. Oh, no, you mean clean, beautiful coal. Sadly, no. Meanwhile, in Japan, this week marked the seventh anniversary of the historic earthquake and tsunami disaster that caused the meltdown of three nuclear reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Plant owner TEPCO announced this week that a $320 million underground ice wall is failing to stop groundwater from seeping into the plant, and that's preventing the company from removing melted radioactive fuel at the site. Mm. And it could undermine the entire decommissioning process for the plant, already projected to take 30 to 40 years. But there is a bit of good news. The maker of famous Lego toys is going greener. The Danish toy maker will phase in its first ever Lego bricks made entirely from plant-based material, uh, bioplastic made from Brazilian sugarcane. Starting this year, they'll add the new pieces with the goal of transitioning to 100% sustainably sourced plant materials for all of its building bricks. It is still a type of plastic, but switching from oil-based to plant-based plastics will cut Lego's carbon footprint by about 70%. Well, we will take whatever we can get at this point. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, just a little sarcasm there. Everything uh, from the Lego movie. Uh, Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, uh, our producer. And my thanks to my guest today, Bart Naylor of Public Citizen. Also, my thanks to all of you who uh, spend a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can... Or any other. You can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. I received a note today with a donation at bradblog.com slash donate from Barry N. Who says, thanks for all the fun. Fun? He calls this fun? (laughs) He says, I listen to many progressive radio shows, but yours is the most entertaining. Aw, yay. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. The other ones suck, don't they? (laughs) Um, He says, snarky is good there. Swell fellow. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Barry. I appreciate that. And thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Uh, To be frank, we need a whole bunch more of you to stop by there and uh, sign up for subscriptions, any amount you like, to bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like to tell me uh, why you're not going to bradblog.com slash donate. Uh, I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Would love to hear from you there as well. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everything is awesome.